words. They get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake gold. Cold blood is with the Sprouse I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about impressions and focus. I've been thinking about education, women, and the prairie. I've been thinking about beauty and intensity, and how sometimes history dwarfs our experience. My guest today is Marta McDowell, and her most recent beautiful and rich book is The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder. She's also the author of All the President's Gardens, Beatrix Potter's Gardening Life, and Emily Dickinson's Garden. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thanks for having me, Ellie. So really what I've been thinking about in the last few minutes, as you know, is um, the internet and passwords and the frustration of it all. And it's funny because you were joking that uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder wouldn't have had to worry about any of that, which I was thinking when I was resetting my password. But she would have worried about a lot of other things that we don't, but maybe we'd be better off if we did. I was thinking that just this morning as I was driving to the studio. Um, I want to start with something that's right at the beginning of your book. It's the book's promo at the at the um, cover page. And it says, Discover the love of nature that shaped America's most cherished pioneer. And I was thinking you knew so much about Laura prior to writing the book. What did you discover on the way? Oh, I, I had so many surprises, Ellie. Uh, starting with, she lived in places that I never knew about. Uh, The most prominent being Missouri. She lived the majority of her life in the Ozarks, in the western side of Missouri, and and did write about it, but not in the Little House books. So so that was a whole part of her life that I didn't know about myself. And so that was something I want to kind of set out right on the table at the beginning, that there were sort of um, the Little House on the Prairie books that you refer to as the fictionalized books. And then there were other books that were nonfiction. And I hadn't even realized that. So she wrote, um, at first, uh, journalism. She was a farm journalist and wrote about, I'd say, like, lifestyle pieces, but farm-oriented about all sorts of things. She wrote about her poultry. She wrote about their farming techniques. She wrote about other neighboring farms and what they were growing. Um, You know, and she wrote about kind of her thoughts. And she wrote a couple of diary-type books that were later published. And she wrote an autobiography, so nonfiction, before she actually decided to make this fictional account. And, yeah, I was thinking she's the Martha Stewart of the 1800s with her early articles. You know, there was her kitchen and canning and, you know, how you could you could do your, your work and look at kneading the bread and look out the window if you set your kitchen up this way. That's right. So, you know, she had many of the same ideas that we work with now. She was just in a different time and place. But she didn't write the stuff that made her really famous until she was in her 60s. So, And I thought that was so fabulous, and I had no idea. Because through the book, I was like, as you say, she, she reinvented herself so many times. And then began her serious writing in her 50s, and then the books in the 60s. Was that typical for that period? Because I would never have guessed it it would be. Um, Or was she a complete pioneer in all sorts of ways? You know, I think she was unusual in the combination of things that she did in her life. So if you think about it, you know, she's first this, you know, daughter of settlers that are moving their way around the Midwest. And she does various things. She teaches, she's a seamstress, she helps her parents run a hotel, you know, lots of things that she's doing for cash money. I mean, I guess nowadays you might call it child labor, um, as well as working, helping to work on the farm. Um, and then she becomes a farmer with her husband, Elmanzo. She would have said, I'm a farm wife. And, um, and yet she starts writing kind of in her spare time. And then it's not till she really 
is pretty much retired from farming that she starts to write um, more and I'd say more seriously in a way, although I, you, I can't say that her journalism wasn't serious. And she's working for the government at one point in oh, the government that's office. Right. That's right. So she's working the farm banking, helping with farm loans. She actually ran for a political office, which she did not win. Hard <laughs> to believe, looking back. Yeah, yeah, hard to believe. And so you so said she the, was a very busy person. And you said the thing that surprised you most was the amount of moving, and that for me as well. And the fact that they moved back and forth. And again, that struck me as... I wanted to ask you, is that, was that at all typical in the day? Because you think it must have been so difficult. You know, I don't have numbers, Ellie, but there was a lot of this kind of bouncing around. And there was even a word for it. They called it backtrailing. You know, like people that didn't make it or didn't like it, that would try either a different spot further east or go back home or keep on going, which is what her father seemed to always want to do. I mean, he, he, according to at least the books, he wanted to keep pushing on to Oregon, you know, like, keep going. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to have a long talk about Pa later on. <laughs> a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of surprises there, things that I thought, okay, well, Michael Landon would not have done that. So yeah, I had to, <laughs> I had to assimilate the, the characters in my mind. So did you, right. did you grow up reading all of the books? And, and what ages did you, did you sort of begin to, to dive in? I grew up reading some of the books. I was a really uh, avid reader as a child, but kind of random. Uh, and I still have the sort of random uh, stack of books on, you know, what's, next, what's on my bedside table. So I wasn't ever a great series reader, you know, starting at the beginning and reading to the end. My sister, Pat, she was the one and still is that will read every book in order, you know, of, right. of any author that she picks. Um, so I think I was around the third or fourth grade. I remember bringing them home from the public library. Uh, I do not share the experience and I envy people who had them read to them in class. I talked to a lot of people where, you know, around third grade, they had a teacher who would read them the books. But for some Ooh, reason yeah, in my school, good. yeah, that didn't happen. That didn't happen and in my I school was, either. Yeah, I was the fourth child. So while I remember my mother sort of calling in, if I spelled a word out, I was in the diner when she was in the kitchen cooking. I think she, she was tired of reading stories to kids by then. <laughs> So anyway, I did, you know, I, I read some of them and then in rereading them as, as an adult, I thought, you know, which ones had I read? I definitely had read Little House on the Prairie uh, and a couple of the others, but I, yeah, I didn't read them from start to finish. So I didn't grow up on them in the same way that some people have, you know, I'll do talks where people really know the book's intimately to the point where you know they will quote things to me um so okay i think they reread those as adults because i remember reading them all but i really couldn't quote anything and and i was even surprised reading through when you would talk about some things that happened in in various books and i was like oh that's right you know because i was thinking about that how even with the history that we're reading, we sort of recreated in our own mind and have at the time focused on certain aspects and completely missed other aspects of it as well. Well, I think that's, you know, to, to give credit to Wilder as a writer, she creates a set of characters and a place that the reader inhabits. You know, whoever the reader is, they make their spot in the books. So whether you read them and thought of yourself as Laura or whether you read them and thought of yourself as Mary or <laughs> as Almando, you know, it's like you feel like you are there with them. And that is a true talent. Um, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't kidding when I said, you know, I really felt like I was Laura Ingalls Wilder, uh, 
when I was reading these books. And I think a lot of people share that um, sort of feeling of I can be in this spot and wonder what what Laura would have done here. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> when you said, what would Laura do, you and your friends, time, what would Laura do? And, and that's a different question to me now, having finished your book. I think the answers that I would, would um, garner from what Laura would do would be different from the real Laura. And I think you separate that, the fictional Laura and the real Laura. So let's... Yeah, you know, I, yeah, I, go ahead. I do feel like um, it's hard sometimes to realize that these autobiographical novels are novels. And, um, you know, again, that's part of their charm is that she was, she made her memories so rich that even when she tampers, if you will, with the actual happening, you know, you still kind of go along because she is so real in terms of character and place. So let's set the stage a little more. It's, uh, the government is at this time in history trying to promote people to leave their settled cities and head head out. Um, there are all sorts of incentives. There's the Homestead Act of 1962. There's sort of quote-unquote free land. Um, there are then, you know, different ways to make claims and incentives to go because another thing I hadn't realized, they left a really nice place in a really nice home. Yes, and it is true that, that my niece, who was in third or fourth grade at the time, did say to her mother, why did they leave the little house in the big woods? It was really great. Yeah. <laughs> and they go out, you know, where they're sort of, you know, practically getting drowned, crossing creeks, and they, you know, they have all sorts of issues about land, you know, is the land theirs? No, he never really had title, you know, and, and could they stay on it? Um, you know, you wonder. And yet there was this idea that the next farm could be your your bonanza, right? You would break the sod, you would plant your wheat, and the wheat prices would be so high that you'd just make a fortune, and I think that was always a sort of one shining star uh, in terms of moving. And, you know, just always, I think Charles Ingalls had this feeling of it'll be better over the next hill. <laughs> oh, you know, and better then, than and it then is when here. you read it in hindsight and you're like, oh, they just would have stayed one more season. You know, they pull up just, just at the wrong time so often. You you yeah. said in the book um, the irony of agricultural history when you refer to Charles replacing the wild grasses. Um, why was that ironic? Well, you know, they were breaking this prairie that had been there, you know, for millennia and replacing grasses with grains that are also grasses, you know, in the botanical sense. Um, but still changing the environment really radically. I mean, it's, it's beautiful agricultural land. If you drive across the middle of the country uh, through these states and see these great fields of, uh, and great farms, it's, it's very beautiful and very touching. And yet it's entire, you know, we entirely changed the ecology of that part of the continent. So in terms of ecological change, it's, you know, it's stunning, if you will. And it was really hard to do so. I mean, you have to sort of imagine him and the others doing it with a spoon, basically. <laughs> yes. So it was all hand labor. The fact that it got done, it's still astonishing to me. Just like, you know, if you go into the part of Wisconsin where they lived, that was entirely forested. And you look at the beautiful farmland that's there. It's hard to imagine that that was a vast hardwood forest. Of course, the same is true of the East Coast. So it's we, in, settle, in settling, right, changed the, the environment completely. Um, and that's just the way it is. But it, it is, it's amazing to kind of mull that over and think about it and realize that the only places we can see how it was 
which she experienced during her life is to kind of see little kind of parts and <laughs> and tiny little shreds. Well, and your book is so physically beautiful. The paper is is beautiful, and the pictures are are just wonderful. Um, and Laura comments at some point that the prairie, which she expected it to be sort of this empty land, is really so full with different flowers and plants and animals. Has that changed today, or is there still all of that magic out there in the prairie that I had no idea existed? It's still all out there, but you have to look harder because it's not the whole place anymore. Uh, I think we are really cognizant now of, um, you know, trying to put some parts of it back. And uh, even in front of the, the little house on the prairie replica, sort of the museum site in Kansas, you know, it's part of a prairie preserve where they've, they're replanting all of the grasses and the native wildflowers and trying to make sort of through ways, right, for the birds and the bugs and the animals. Um, it's true along some of the highways, uh, through the middle of the country as well. And how did they choose the places to settle, especially Charles, but sort of in general? Um, how? Because it seems like there were so many diverse choices. It wasn't just like, oh, if you came from this town, you pretty much were going to go settle out to this other town that you knew about. Everyone seemed to know a lot about the different options and and choose very differently. I was surprised that he had chosen, that Charles had chosen the Indian Territory, you know, was sort of just hoping that maybe they'd be able to stay instead of choosing a place that he knew he would be able to settle. Yeah, that one, I'm not sure how he got uh, that from Wisconsin to what today is Kansas. M- many of the places they moved, they moved because of friends or family. So, you know, wh- while the social media of the 19th century took longer, it still existed. So people would say, oh, I'm going to try such and such because so-and-so lives there. And so, you know, that's how they ended up in Minnesota, that's how they ended up in Baroque, Iowa, and then even when they go back from Minnesota and push on to the Dakota Territory, it's because somebody in the family gets him a job working at one of the railroad camps. So it was connections and networking even then, but it was word of mouth and letters and promotional flyers, you know, the railroads and the government would put out these flyers and they'd get passed around. But there really was a phenomenon of Western fever, the way, you know, all of a sudden it seems like everybody is moving to XYZ. It was really fun to read, you know, read other pioneer diaries and sort of yeah, because learn about in general. Here someone sees a Super Bowl, they're in somewhere sunny, whereas they were in the depths of winter and they're like, huh, I think I could move there. It was, it was a little different. And I love that you put the flyers in the book. And there were a number of those in there. And they gave you a sense of sort of how the communication was working and, and the, the media, as you say. How, do you have a sense of how the mail was working at that point? Because at one point, Charles sends a letter, I've got to call him Manly, sends a letter to Manly as they're traveling. And sort of mid-travel, they get the letter and he's giving them advice on, you know, what to look for when they're finding a place to settle. How does he get the letter? Yeah, you know, I don't know a lot about the history of the Postal Service, although I think it's quite interesting. I do know that people would leave, like, they'd say general post office, and you could mail something to a town. And then when, you know, when your loved one arrived in town, they knew to go to the post office and check. But it is sort of fascinating when you think about, okay, the mail, I guess there was train and you know, I guess this would have been sort of post-Pony Express, but I think most of it was probably moving around by train and by wagon, I suppose. You talk about in the book your experience of um, crossing the river, and that's one of the points where you talk about what that was like on retracing some of their journey. What was the experience for you like crossing the river, and do you feel like you got a good sense of what it would have been in the covered wagon? I think everything would have been hard. I mean, really hard. If you think about it, Caroline Ingalls was pregnant 
on that wagon ride from Wisconsin to Kansas. So she's pregnant. She's got these two little girls. Um, you know, they're camping along the way in really rough conditions. And, um, you know, they get to rivers that they have, they either will ferry across or they'll, you know, try to drive the team across. And it's really hair-raising when you read this description of, you know, the kind of floating the wagon and the horses are swimming. <laughs> Charles gets out to swim and, you know... There's a reason why, like the Weather Channel will say, you know, don't cross the deep water in your car. It's really dangerous. Well, and I think the gauge of how rough of a travel it was is whether Paul was playing the fiddle that night at the, the campfire. There's no discussion really about the dangers of it, um, it seems, in at, at least the fictional books. Was there more in Laura's autobiography uh, or, or through your research? Did you get a sense of really how dangerous these uh, travels were? Um, there's more. There's still not as much about the hardship as you might expect. And I puzzled over that and then decided, Ellie, that part of it is She's writing these much later in life. So both Pioneer Girl, the autobiography, and then the novels. And I'm around her age that she was when she was writing now. And when I look back on scary times of my childhood, they're not as scary, I think, as they were at the time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're, they're sort of like a, it's like a fuzzy lens, right? It, it softens over time. Um. So I think that was part of it. And then when she wrote it up for children in novels, she definitely edited out some of the scary bits. I mean, there are still some very scary parts of the series, but, but she, um, you know, for example, her mother lost a baby boy. So she doesn't talk in the novels about baby Freddie at all. He just is off stage, doesn't, doesn't make an appearance. It's interesting, too, because I think it tells a lot of her personality, that she had to be someone that was optimistic and looked on the bright side and maybe put those parts behind her and moved on. That wasn't where she was going to focus, because that wasn't the kind of person that she was. Yes, that's absolutely true. And it's astounding to me that she could end up so positive after so many difficulties through her life, um, you know, beyond when the Little House series ends kind of with a happily ever after ending when she and Almanzo get married, uh, she went through some real hardship. And I think, you know, it was also part of the, you know, that sort of stoic um, demeanor or character that people believed in. I mean, I even remember my mother telling me once, much later, you know, how much she had mourned when she lost her father, which I remembered. I was probably six years old when my grandfather died. And I said, well, you know, I don't remember that. And she said to me, oh, well, I used to go down the basement so no one would see me cry. And I thought, oh, how sad, right, that she couldn't show or she didn't feel like it was appropriate to show her grief. But I think that was part of the her upbringing and something that she shared with Laura Ingalls. Well, then I would say with Caroline, right, with Ma, that's what I always thought most about her was she was stoic. You know, sort of if you could get her to, to smile or laugh, then that was something, you know, because she was kind of all, all Mr. Business. Right, that stiff upper lip. And, and I think to some degree she... She was the kind of bad guy of the two parents, right? So she, she was more the disciplinarian, and Pa was a little bit like the romantic and a little bit more of a soft touch, I think. 
Well, I have to say that was the thing I was most surprised about was when Charles leaves in the middle of the night and leaves his debts. And that was when I was like, wait, Michael Landon would not do that. He was so all about, you know, being honest and and, um, upright. And I was like, huh, really? That was a surprise. Yeah. And the show, it's a wonderful show. I think since it started in the 1970s, I don't think it's ever been completely off you know, being televised. I think it's been on continuously, but it's only just generally connected. Right. Yeah, I know. I felt, especially connect the Mary story was very, very altered. It seems. Yes. Um, And in the books as well. It doesn't make it bad. Right. But it just makes it different. And so I did think of Nellie, though, when you talk about the poem book that Laura gets for her seventh birthday, and there is the small uh, mention of the poem, Nellie Who Sits in the Parlor with Simpering Face. I wondered if that was the beginning of the um, caricature of Nellie later on. Maybe so. Nellie was a sort of composite character anyway. Um, you know, if you look up the wiki article on Nellie Olson, it'll talk about the three different real people that they now think that Nellie was based on. But who knows? Maybe that little poem stuck in her mind. I had a great time reading through that poetry book and trying to puzzle out things like that. So we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I'm speaking with Marta McDowell about her amazing book. It really is amazing. The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder. When I first got it, I was I knew we had this interview this week and I was going to take it with me traveling. And I was like, oh, it's heavy. Like, how am I going to take that? But then when I opened it, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to take it because it's a treasure. Like every page, I found myself running my hands across the, the pages and the pictures, which I don't think is something I've done probably since I was a child. Um, and the book is uh, The Frontier Landscapes That Inspired the Little House Books. And this is KDPI 88.5 FM. Catch them. We're streaming live 24-7 at kdpifm.org. So let's talk a little bit, Marta, about your experience writing. You had said that what interests you most is the connection between gardening and those who um, choose to pick up the pen, um, which is who you are, it seems, in many senses, someone whose two loves are writing and agriculture. What is it do you think about, either in your own lives or the lives of people you write about, this connection between gardening and plant life and, and writing? Well, I find them both physical, but in different ways. Right. So when you're gardening, you're out there with actual soil and different sorts of tools. But when you're writing, you're kind of creating, you're still creating a place, right? It's just through a different medium. And so, you know, it, it, this all started really with kind of accidentally stumbling across Emily Dickinson's interest in gardening. And so from that, I sort of kept pulling on various threads saying, well, are there other writers or artists for whom this was a connection? Um, And you can write when you can't get out there in the garden. (laughs) And you can write looking at the garden. That's right. If it's nighttime, you can write sitting in the garden. Although I have to say, I do spend too much time gardening at my keyboard as opposed to out there gardening (laughs) in the big wide world. I felt struck by the continuity that the plant life and a little bit the animal life, but the plant life provided Laura Ingalls that throughout her life from the youngest age to the end of her life, that there was a continuity provided by her relationships to the flowers and plants and trees. And that was something I completely missed when I read the novels as a child, Ellie, that, you know, I couldn't have even told you that there were plants in the books. I mean, maybe wheat or, you know... I might have remembered the irises because she does talk about them several times, but 
it was more like the window dressing, right? I was interested in the characters and the plot and really not so much the, the plants and the landscape. So it was, it was surprising to me actually how much there was throughout her writing. I mean, I, I did a big inventory that's collected in the back of the book of all the different plants that are mentioned in various places. I think it's over 200. I mean, it's, it's a lot of individual plants. Um, so, you know, in a way you could class her with nature writers, you know, people like Aldo Leopold or even Thoreau, you know, there, there were, there was a nice lineup of what she had written about these blue flags and what he had written about them. Um, even though we don't normally think about her in that way she writes so much about about nature and and the natural world well and I had felt the same way and I was I'm, I'm sort of pleased to hear that you had the same experience because I thought oh it's just because I'm such a loser gardener that I didn't notice but I think it is because as you said as whatever age we were reading those we were focused on the elements that connected with our hearts most at that time and I, I'm wishing now my mother was still alive and I could ask her if when she was reading it to us as an adult that she was focusing on the the beauty of the plants and the somehow the sense reading your book I get is that that was what grounded Laura throughout not only grounded her but that's where the joy was found as she's even driving to visit her daughter or on a, a trip with her daughter and also when she was on the train to California to visit her daughter, she's sending manly photos and her drawings or writing about the plants that she's seeing. I mean, that's right. She was really connected to land. And so there's one point where she's on a train. She's going from Missouri to see her daughter who has at that point settled in California and San Francisco and she writes to Manley about, you know, looking out the window and the places she sees and their possibility for farming. Like, oh, you know, we can move out here. So she had a little bit of that Charles Ingalls as well. Um, you know, they ended up in Missouri and they did stay there. That's where they stuck. But, you know, at various times, even she and Almanzo thought about going to New Zealand. You know, <laughs> like, Wow, that would have been a different story. It was a wow. It was a wow to me to think that they had even considered that. Like it, it completely reshaped my idea of what it was like to live in those times. Yeah, they went to Florida. You go. They went, went to, to Florida. Florida. <laughs> Only for a year, but they did live there. And they went to Florida after Manly had been struck with illness. And they, you know, you mentioned a number of times of the different illnesses and, and was partially paralyzed. Right. So he wanted a place with warmer winters, which is not going to be South Dakota or Minnesota. And so they end up going with a cousin who has staked a claim on land on the panhandle, on the Florida panhandle, not far from Alabama. And uh, Laura just hates it. I mean, <laughs> it's too hot. The people treat her like a foreigner. She's just, un there's one picture of them and she just looks miserable. <laughs> well, I think that element surprised me that there was this level of conscious choice about where we're going to live and what we're going to do. And especially with Charles, that we're going to try different things and sort of see what fits. And then Laura did the same, which was my misimpression completely of that time where it was really just, well, you were stuck where you were stuck. And it was all about survival. Right. And another thing that I found amazing was they, the Ingalls weren't alone in staking a homestead claim and in proving up, so he does eventually in the Dakota Territory, he stakes a claim and he proves up on it. So it's his land. He's gotten his free land. He's won his bet with the government. And then he sells it. And he goes, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought he was supposed to stay there and farm it. But it, it wasn't that unusual that people would stake a claim really for the purposes of I'm selling unless something, you know, unless they did really well on the land. They just were were using it as an investment, right? The way somebody today might say, oh, well, you know, 
I'll buy this new stock and then I'll, you know, in a couple of years when it goes up, I'll sell it. Well, and they were resilient. I'm thinking about the stocks when they lost all the money in the crash of the stock market later on. You know, they were probably upset, but they were, what's next? And I'm wondering, too, if that is a type of the personality, both resilience and also this wanderlust and what's next, sort of entrepreneurship, that were the personalities of the type of people who decided to venture out and go west. Yeah, I think it must have been. And I think that it also... You know, it informs whether it's the real American character or whether it's, you know, mythological American character or mythical, I guess is the right word. It is what we do honor, right? We honor that, you know, kind of hardworking, tough, we're just going to keep at it. You know, this blizzard, this winter is not going to get us we're going to live through it. Um, although, personally, I'm not sure I would have survived. Well, and I was going to say, you're reminding me, it's sort of like the introvert versus extrovert, Susan Cain and saying, you know, we, as a nation, we honor those who are the extrovert. And yet, if we look back at history and say, who really are responsible for the majority of those discoveries and inventions that we all benefit from, it was actually more the introverts. So it, it is interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the blizzards, droughts, and pests. It's not only were they struggling through uh, really digging up this sod and these, these very challenging, challenging landscapes to plant, but they were then, once they got planted, having to deal with you know, blizzards or droughts and, and a swarm of grasshoppers that may come by without any warning. Absolutely. I mean, you were talking about technology kind of dwarfing our experience, but nature did and still does, right? You need something like a tornado or a hurricane or an earthquake to remind us of that. Um, With the Ingalls and then the Wilders, they had more connection because their livelihood depended on nature, um, which isn't always kind. So in Little House on the Prairie, they get malaria. She calls it fever and egg, but, you know, from mosquitoes because there are no screens and no insect repellent. Um, in the Minnesota books, uh, like on the bank of banks of Plum Creek, they have several harvests completely decimated by the Rocky Mountain locusts, the, the grasshoppers, as she calls them. And I, I find it hard to imagine, but these swarms ate every green thing. You know, not just the, the plants that were planted in the fields, but everything. So there was just nothing there. And so, again, Charles Ingalls, he walks, he, you know, puts on his boots. He walks 200 miles to eastern Minnesota, which was not devastated by the swarms, and basically worked as a migrant worker so that he would have enough money to feed his family over the winter. And he tries again, the grasshoppers come again, and at that point he goes, okay, you know, we're going to move. Um, so it, it was very difficult. And it's interesting to think as well as you're reading through your book, what the mindset was like at that point, because it wasn't so much a thought that we can control and we just have to figure out how, because they didn't even really understand where these things were coming from. At one point, they thought malaria came from eating watermelon. And when Laura and Manley are taking their drives in these beautiful red, red sunsets, they have no idea that the real cause is an eruption somewhere else in a different part of the world. You know, that piece is missing, the idea that we could control these things if we knew what was causing them. It seems like it's just starting to shift as far as a mentality. But I'm wondering, you know, I thought about it as I read the book, if that made things easier to keep going. Yeah, maybe so. I hadn't thought about it that way. But, you know, I mean, they had, they were people of faith. They believed that there was 
you know, some overall plan and that, you know, they were just a part of it as was nature and they were just going to keep going. Um, and so, uh, that, that might've helped them through it. I think in the 21st century, sometimes we feel that we have control that we don't have. <laughs> and there were new discoveries all the time. Um, I really enjoyed the part of the book when you talked about the rhubarb and how the rhubarb had initially come into America and then been used in the, you know, as it would have been in the medicine cabinet and then ended up on the pie plate. Yeah. Yeah. That was one thing I had actually hoped for in research is that I would have found more about her family and about her life and using medicinal plants because I know that they must have. Uh, there are a few references, including one that I found when she was dosing her daughter with something called Missouri snake root, that thanks to a biologist in Kansas, I was able to track down as being a form of echinacea, you know, the way you'd buy echinacea at the health food store. Um, so I'm sure she used them, but it just was probably such a matter of course in life that she didn't really comment on it. Well, the other thing that struck me was it was such a time of sort of scientific trial and error by individuals. When you talk about Manley becoming an expert um, in growing the apples, and you see that earlier on in his relationship to developing the trees that he's planting for a tree claim. And Charles as well, you know, he's trying something, sort of seeing how it works, adjusting it a little bit and trying something else. That was surprising to me, the level of experimentation, and then understanding of what was working and what wasn't and and going then further in that direction. They were definitely open to new technology and new, you know, sort of new ways of doing things. So in the early books, you get, you know, kind of that medieval farm practices, right? It looks like a Bruegel painting where uh, I think Father Wilder is shown sowing the corn by hand and Pa is cutting the hay with a hay cradle. And, you know, everything is done by hand, the sheaves of wheat, that sort of thing. All the children are out there uh, in the fields tying things up. Uh, in the later books, they are using binders, you know, these big threshers and binders and um, all sorts of cutting machines. The plows had greatly improved, which is actually what allowed the breaking of the prairie sod. Uh, and they were, I'd say, early adopters. You know, they'd, they'd try out the new things as soon as they could. Uh, Manley's trying out in Missouri, all sorts of things that we're talking about again now, you know, amending the soil and using green manure cover crops and, you know, keeping the balance of the quails and the bugs and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, You know, it's like we're going back to the future in a way. So let's talk a little bit about the industrialization and the changes that that brought um, as far as the tools and the plows. And I'm wondering how it affected, as you look through that history, the shift for women. I was a little bit surprised that Laura and Rose were both getting so much respect as female writers in that day. And I'm wondering if that surprised you at all um, as well. Well, I think that there had there'd been a change in terms of women being interested in women writers. I mean, they're, they're preceded by people like Edith Wharton and I guess Willa Cather probably would have been more of a contemporary. Um, so that I felt was, you know, they were at the beginning of the wave, but they were certainly in with a small pack at least. Um, you know, whether they were paid as much, I don't know. I know that Rose Wilder Lane was a very highly paid magazine writer. Um, so well, yes, I was sort of thinking if the shift came after that, because maybe on the prairie and, and on the frontiers, women, you know, had an equal role, so to speak, you know, more, more sort of value inequality in some ways and sort of then um, the shift happened maybe later with more industrialization where the, the lines were really drawn. So, yeah, it's hard. I was thinking, yeah, were, they, were they at the beginning or were they at the end? Yeah, that's quite possible. It would be an interesting thing to follow because, 
you know, women in the West, they could homestead. They had equal rights to make homestead claims. One of Laura's sisters, Carrie, did have a homestead claim that she proved up on. Um, you know, they had their own land, so they had their own money. Um, it, it might have kind of started out there. It, again, it would be an interesting thing to track. So I have two, two more questions for you. One, I'm wondering, who surprised you most uh, throughout the research you'd done after reading the books? Was there one character that was not who you thought they'd been or who had lived a very different life than you had thought after reading, reading the series? Mm. Well, I'd say one thing that surprised me, that I, I'd still like to learn more about her, was Eliza Jane, who was totally a bad guy in the books if anyone hasn't read them eliza jane is almanzo's older sister and she ends up teaching school uh to the ingles girls are in the class in this one-room schoolhouse and eliza jane really is you know they make fun of her and she can't keep control and and uh and yet when laura and almanzo are married they're living in missouri they're raising their daughter. Uh, their daughter, Rose, was very precocious. She was definitely a gifted child. Uh, she gets through the, you know, the school system as it was in Mansfield, and I think is kind of miserable as an adolescent. And they send her off to uh, Aunt Eliza Jane, who was living in Louisiana at the time, to finish high school away from home. So, and give her and give her commencement speech in Latin that she learnt, you know, three months of in in one month or something crazy. Absolutely, and you think, wow, that was not something that I expected. I guess for me it was Mary. Like Mary's life seemed very different from the one that I had envisioned, and I think I had envisioned maybe a happier one uh, than the one it seems that she may have lived. Yeah, Mary, you know, in the TV series, she gets married, right? She has she has a baby, doesn't she? Yeah. And, uh, you know, in, in real life, she does go to the Iowa School for the Blind. You know, she is, she is blind. Now people think it was meningitis, not scarlet fever. But for whatever reason, she was blind from, you know, from her youth through the rest of her life. Um, you know, she comes home. And she never leaves home. She doesn't marry. She lives uh, at home and is the last one left at home with her mother. Her mother, you know, her father dies first, then her mother dies. And then she goes to live with her sister. But um, I think that was sad. They die at really late ages. Oh, yes. Well, you know, you go, wow, these people who had all these really, really hard illnesses like Almanza was ninety two when he died. Laura was ninety. So they, they had they had longevity genes somewhere <laughs> somewhere along the line. Um, or these mindsets that, of, of determination and resilience. Yeah, yeah, they were tough. Um and I think that at the end, like Caroline Ingalls and and Mary, you know, living at home, they were living in town in a little house that Charles had built them in town. They had a garden out back, but they had very little money. And, you know, there were neighbors that remembered bringing them, you know, bringing them food and things. So I think life was hard for them. They they'd never really had, you know, two quarters to rub together, as they say. All right, so my last question. Have you figured out the secret to black walnuts, to opening the black walnut? <laughs> yes. Although it's not one that my father, or I will say, Laura Ingalls Wilder would approve of. And that is, my my good husband bought me a really expensive nutcracker from, I think, Tennessee. It was, it was American-made. It looks like um, a really elegant piece of machinery. It is, you know, it's not electric. It, it is a, you know, it's got a big hand handle, you know, done by hand. Uh, but it looks like a vice, and I certainly wouldn't want to get my finger in it. Uh, it they're extremely hard. <laughs> so the secret as to how Laura Ingalls would have done it, and your your father did it, still unknown. 
still unknown. I tried several, I, I looked at several videos on, on YouTube as the way, the way people do. There was one old gentleman who was doing it down in this workshop. He had a big vice, you know, one of these giant metal things with a crank that gets tighter and tighter. And he used that and he used big metal snips. I tried that and I just, I didn't have the hand strength with the metal snips. Um, they're not easy. I managed to crack a cup of black walnuts about a month ago. Uh, I learned some more things like don't try to do it inside because there are little shards of black walnut shell everywhere and they're really sharp. <laughs> and, uh, and I did ba bake my mother's black walnut cookies. So. so having done all the research and kind of walked many of the paths that that Laura Ingalls Wilde walked. When today you think, what would Laura do? In what way do you feel like it's it's shifted your perspective, either on the way you see things or what you see? Well, one thing I think about is, do I really need this thing? Right. She, she was a person. I will say she loved things. She had a beautiful little home, but they were simple things. Right. She had her needlework, and she liked. She had some books that she loved and she, you know, she loved music. And so they have an organ in the, in the living room and, and they had some music books. And I think that, that Rose finally bought them some sort of stereo or phonograph in the stereo at the time, but they didn't have much stuff. Um, and especially coming into the holiday season, you know, where we do get into this frenzy of buying that, you know, you go, we can make do with much less and the amount you have has nothing to do with, you know, your happiness or the quality of a person you are or the happiness of the person you're thinking of giving something to. And she seems to have had a, a combination of, I mean, a life of synchronicities. Even the writing really came about through a synchronicity. She was supposed to be speaking somewhere and she was ill, so she ended up writing it down. And there just happened to be an editor in the audience who then said, oh, this is worth publishing. Like for me, she has this sense of sort of open heart, open eyes, determination, but definitely willing to go where the river is taking her. Yes. And shouldn't we all do that, right? Like, always think about, well, you know, what is next? And and kind of live to the fullest. And there are letters that she wrote to young fans when she was well into her 80s, you know, about just in response to things that children children would write to her. And you think she's still taking time to, you know, to answer very sweetly a note from some child somewhere. And that's just a wonderful thing. It really is. Well, and another wonderful thing is your book. Uh, I've been speaking with Marta McDowell about her book, The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder, The Frontier Landscapes That Inspired the Little House Books, and, and I think will inspire any reader as well. The book itself is just incredibly beautiful and um, full of wonder and, and depth. So thank you so much, Marta, and thanks for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. My pleasure, Ellie. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.